Hey everyone, my name is Ryan Griggs and I'm the host of the Regenaissance podcast. And alongside me today, I have Dax Hansen with Oatman Farms. Thank you, Dax, for joining me. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Ryan. So I guess to really get started, um, whenever I was looking up at the website and everything, there's so much that drew to my attention. Um, the fact that you're a fourth generational farmer and the fact that the transition from cotton alfalfa to now to, where you, to what you're doing with wheat. And the biggest thing that really drew my attention is where you're located in the Sonoran Desert, which for the listeners don't, don't know, that's the hottest desert in America. And so that really, I really wanted to talk a lot about that too, because I'm mm-hmm. really curious to hear about your experiences through all of that. I guess to really get started, yeah, if you could just give a brief history of Oatman Farms dating back to whenever it first started. Sure, absolutely. So uh, the 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 official name of the the farm the ranch is called Oatman Flats Ranch and then we have a food company uh consumer packaged goods company called uh, Oatman Farms and and uh the, both of those names go back to uh really a place a place that is located along the um the Gila River in southwestern Arizona uh it, the the area that my farm is is located on is is called open flat it is a flood plain a plat a flat that was named after a family that uh had some misfortune there so there was a a family called the oatmans that were traveling uh, out west in 1851 and they ended up um uh, there's a 10 member family um eight of or seven of them ended up getting massacred by indians at the time and um and two, the two daughters were taken captives as slaves one of them ended up surviving that ordeal that's all of oatman and she was pretty famous in old west history because she was one of the first uh, people who had been tattooed on her chin i think that was part of actually her being integrated into the mojave tribe uh her brother lorenzo ended up um he was not senseless, but he ended up surviving the attack and in recovering and finding her. And so the in the, the historical literature, that place is called Oatman Flat because of, of that uh, incident. But the history of that place goes back much further. Native Americans had been living there and farming there for thousands of years. Uh, the Spanish Jesuits who came up from Mexico had stopped in those places uh, and stopped at Oatman Flats Ranch and recorded um, their encounters with the Native Americans in their diaries. The Mormon Battalion came through there, the Pony Express, the Butterfield Stage, Southern Immigrant Trail. So like everything you can think of <laughs> in Old West history uh, happened there, right? And so for in, in my family, and there's the story um, in 1955 when my grandpa and grandma bought that place and started farming it. So that's been where the Hansons have uh, settled. If, if there's a place where the Hansons love or, or they like to gather, it's been Open Flats Ranch. So I can tell you more about it, but but that's really you know uh the sort of the, the origin story of the of the the place. I, I liken it to like the Hidden Valley Ranch dressing as a kid I was growing up and I read about Hidden Valley Ranch, I wanted to go there, right? And Oatman uh, Farms, Oatman Flats Ranch, um, is a place where we want people to come 
you know, we're committed to like radical transparency and telling our story. And it is a fascinating story on many levels. And so I'm glad that you found some things in it that interested you. Um, maybe just to kind of continue, my, my grandpa started uh, down there uh, running cattle to begin with. Um, but uh, then uh, he that, that area had actually been farmed by one of the the the, the settlers early on. It had been run with cattle, but then the, during World War II, someone grew some cotton out there. And so that area ended up having a cotton base to it that could be transferred to another location. So my grandpa transferred the cotton up close to the Phoenix area, Mesa, where he was farming other farms, ran cattle, but then eventually just moved his primary operation down to Open Flats Ranch and grew cotton primarily as, as the primary a crop uh, for all of his career um, until he ended up passing. And and uh, that's where there was uh, a kind of transition to me. But, um, but yeah, it, it's, uh, uh, it, it was conventionally farmed with cotton. Um, maybe, uh, so the, the other, the, most of the crops in the area are, uh, Alfalfa, it's primarily alfalfa. A lot of Arizona it supports the dairy complex. Uh, it's corn silage, uh, some cotton. Uh, you can grow almost anything in Arizona because you've got um, a lot of sun, as long as you have water. Um, and and then if you have the right sort of inputs. And so a lot of uh, Arizona farmers use a lot of liquid fertilizers and and um, and and with that, you can grow a lot of things. But I don't personally believe that that's the best way to grow them. And where we are at Open Flats Ranch, uh, we really have been short on water. Um, the, the the area as a whole only it gets less than five inches of rain a year. Uh, we have some wells, but those wells um, have like the water tables drop significantly over this, you know, decades long period of of drought or aridification or desertification, whatever you want to call it. And so um in the soils got dried out, bleached out. Uh um when you farm with flood irrigation, as most people do in Arizona with salty soils, the ground basically becomes sterile. So you end up with ground that's about to blow away, just like a modern day dust bowl, and that's what's happening in Arizona and and in a lot of the West, uh, which is what led me to try to uh, institute a whole new program out there with regenerative agriculture to uh, keep it alive. So hopefully that's a good background. I'll pause there, see if you got any other comments, and I can take the the rest of the story where, whichever direction you want to go. Yeah, no, that was incredible. Um, I mean, there's a lot of directions I could definitely take that, but the first one, so it's conventionally. If- farmed from your father and then you mm-hmm. took it over i noticed too on the website it mentioned that did the farm almost go under it did uh so um i mean maybe this is a good place just to to note that i have professionally been uh, a blockchain and a fintech lawyer um that even though i come from farming and ranching roots and multiple generations before me um the that uh, my dad encouraged all his kids uh, to become doctors and lawyers, 
as a way to really survive, right? That farming and well, I mean, agriculture is a tough business. And even um, my family has been farming and ranching and rodeoing. And those are the things that I deeply admire. Oftentimes, it's, it doesn't pay the bills. Mm-hmm. And so um, uh, when my grandpa died and my grandma died, the, the farm went to my aunts and uncles. They did their best to maintain it, but they ended up just needing to lease it out to somebody uh, to farm because farming was too expensive for them to, to handle. And as I mentioned, it's, it's, it's like extreme sports. Like it is, it's almost impossible to farm out there with limited water, right? I mean, the, the, mm-hmm. if you've got abundant water, as I said, and you got all the inputs you want, you can you know, almost grow anything. But if you have, don't have any water or you have very limited water, it's like game over. Yeah. Right. And and so um, that farm that would could have been grown with cotton or alfalfa. I mean, the, the, so the farm is it's six hundred sixty five acres, uh, and um, we're currently growing you know close to four hundred acres of wheat. Plus, we have a bunch of like, grazing land uh, with with conventional cover on it. But we did some calculations based on the amount of water that we had available to us. We probably could have only planted about 40 acres, maybe upwards of 80 acres of alfalfa or cotton, mm-hmm. right? And and so for all of those various reasons, the the farmer who at least the, the place wasn't able to really make go of it. And uh, my aunts and uncles were going to sell it. Um, I couldn't bear to lose it because that's our family legacy and all of the deep history from so many other cultures is represented there. That I jumped in, and even though I'm a full-time practicing attorney, um, I said bite off farming. My my wife was supportive of that, uh, and uh, it's been a wild ride, going on five years, to try to pull something that was almost dead into something that is living and robust. And now we're trying to find, you know, the the, the business model, the agricultural business model that would allow that to 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 flourish. And um, I, I think that we're onto something that will help the entire region. That's awesome. And that's, I mean, that's a, one of the big reasons why I've started this podcast is to, to really share these stories because there's so many ranches and farms throughout America. I mean, throughout the rest of the world that fourth, fifth generation to where there's so many stories passed down. There's that legacy piece that uh, I've really noticed. And I, I mean, that's really beautiful. So there's two, I guess, two questions I really had. The first one would be, whenever you were growing up, did you work out on the land or yeah, were you really immersed with all that? And that's part of the reason that kind of brought you back. I was really curious about your upbringing from that. Yeah. So it's really interesting. It's a great question. Um, so I grew up as a kid all around that farm and around the farming and the ranching and riding horses and other things that was happening in my family. Um, uh, and, um, and so like, I, I have a lot of really fond memories of a kid of just being out there, like feral, just running around in the farm and, and, um, you know, looking at the, all the history out there, the petroglyphs and chasing snakes and swimming in the ditches and, you know, uh, all the rest that that's available there, you know, walking through the, the river and 
finding, you know, animals and and so like it it was it was uh, a really fond place and and as a kid I I read like the you know the Hardy Boys in the Three Investigator books and yeah. you know and this this was as good of an adventure as that like it literally yeah. like it, it was an adventure um, with with like tre- complete with treasure hidden treasure and all the rest right that you could find and money and I had a metal detector and so I did that. My dad, even though he worked on that ranch early on as, as a teenager and actually flew an airplane back and forth so he can get to his hot dates in between, um, our family was the one family of the Colton family that actually didn't take a t- turn living and working down there. Because by that point, my dad had, had become a concrete pumper. He had to flee a concrete pumping trucks, and, and that's what he did instead. And actually, I felt like I got gypped, Ryan, right? Because all of my cousins had had a chance to live out there. And, and I heard all the farming stories. And they're out there with the siphon tubes. And, and they're out there driving the trucks and the tractors and, you know, swimming across the river on horses. And so even though I got some of that, um, I didn't have to go work the land as the farmer. And, and so um, very interestingly, like, I mean, my family, like, we don't come from, like, we're not wealthy people, right? And uh, even though we were all hardworking people. And so by the time, like, we faced as a family this crisis, I think I was one of the only people in the whole extended family who had the ability to just step in and, and keep the farm in the family, right? And so it turned out to be a real blessing that you know, my, my dad and mom encouraged us to go become professionals so that we, so that I get to have my turn on agriculture here later in life. Yeah. And believe me, I'm getting an education <laughs> where I, you know, I've had to figure out soil science and hydrology and animal husbandry and, um, you know, bacterial and fungal interrelations and meteorology and all the rest. And there's nothing like having you know, sort of a ticking clock with a lot of debt and and expenses to really force you to learn all of those disciplines. And uh, so I, I'm I'm um, hap- I'll happily claim that I am a farmer and a rancher, uh, but I end up using some amazing people on my team. I have a great farm manager and multiple people who live down at, at the farm who do a lot of the hard work, and we have some livestock, uh, uh, animal husbandry folks there too. It's a very active place. And so I would say it's, it's really like a team sport <laughs> that it takes a little bit of, I mean, it takes the best and brightest that we can gather and to put into this problem of, um, of really uh, climate change and destructive industrial agriculture. And, uh, and so I do think that as a trained as an attorney, I've had a, a really good, you know, set of skills for problem solving that I can bring to solving agricultural problems, even though I'm not the one out there driving the tractor. And believe me, I'd like to drive the tractor and be the one out there irrigating every day, but um, someone has to make the money to pay for this conversion. And so I, I understand that's my highest and best use at the moment. But yeah, I'm, I'm quite envious of the people who get to spend every day on my farm while I'm, you know, in front of a computer, but, uh, it's, um, you know, it's sort of a shared responsibility. 
Yeah, no, that's great. And I think that's a great transition too. So you were able to take over the the place. Did you just create a, a formal plan or did you hire people right off the bat to really make it a team plan? What was that like whenever you first mm -hmm. took that over? Okay, so when I bought it, when my wife and I bought the place, we went out there and just took an assessment, right? And at that point, I mean, there's actually before and after photos posted on our Instagram site. You look at, at um, on the Instagram for Oatman Farms, you can see the before photos, but it's very desolate, right? Like there was nothing growing, nothing, no, no green. There were trees growing in the field. The ditches were all broken and full of sand. No equipment. The farmhouse had been completely slashed. All the wells were broken. Most of them were and sunken in, and and it's so like nothing was working, right? And 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 all we had were um, gophers and rattlesnakes out there. And so I I was like, holy cow! Like, what are we going to do here? And and when when I started repairing the wells. I realized that one of our main wells, our most heavy you know, producing wells on the north side of the farm, on the north side of the, the Gila River, had um, had, had uh, really, um, what's the word? It had like caved in, collapsed from being old and probably misuse. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so I just realized, oh my gosh, like I was not going to have enough water to farm the way even we could have, my grandpa farmed before. Um, and I just sort of, I stumbled across, you know, it's a longer story, but some experts, um, down at Mission Garden in Tucson, um, Jesus Garcia, Dina Cowan and others who had been bringing back like the, the Brazilian agriculture from, you know, centuries before in Arizona down in Tucson. And when they came up to the farm, they helped me see that there is a different way, like that there are crops like white or wheat that has gotten used to the hot conditions, very little water, it's very hardy. There's other crops like agave and prickly pear that we can grow. And so all of a sudden I wasn't limited to just uh, alfalfa and cotton mm -hmm. and, and quarantine enough water for it. like there was a whole new way. And so it was it became pretty clear from the, the the almost discouraging conditions I started with that I was going to have to go with a low water consuming native crop model. Um, and, and so that put me into this path of people who know desert agriculture. Right. And, um, and it's not that very, that very large of a community, but then that sort of spawns into the regenerative community, like with the regenerative organic Alliance and, Kiss mm -hmm. the ground, and 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 I rapidly became friends with all of those movers and shakers, and have been able to attract like the best attention, uh, uh, because we're the only we're the only regenerative organic certified farm in the entire Southwest United States right now. Wow, right? Okay, and, and and so we're but we were able to get some of these people. I got a farm manager early on who was crazy enough to help me try to bring the farm back into place. I had several great farm hands. Who you know uh, were working, all of us you're working out there, 125 degree weather in the in the middle of the summer and the sand blowing dust blowing your eyes because we didn't have it covered yet. Like we didn't have grass growing. It was it was you know like pretty desolate conditions. 
Um, and so for me, it, it, I've had a, just like an A team, a small team. And then the number of people who have been, you know, wanting to participate, study it, for instance, uh, has grown over time, including some um, some ranchers who have wanted to collaborate with me. It, it, I mean, it just becomes obvious if you do regenerative agriculture, you need animals out there too. And and the, the type of agriculture that I'm growing is really helpful for for livestock. Um, and so, you know, that, that the, the amount of activity out there, the number of people has grown. But, you know, uh, it's been a pretty desperate situation from a financial perspective where I have to grow, go, grow kind of, you know, slowly um, because I can't afford it just to hire like a whole army of people to come out and work there. Yeah. You know? How I'm trying to see how I can best formulate that, because how have you been able to manage it from the financial standpoint, especially paired with the fact that you hardly get any rain? Because um, mm-hmm. I'm curious if there have been any years to where. Um, yeah, you just had issues with just water as a whole and how you've been able to manage that, especially from a financial mm-hmm. standpoint. Yeah. So, um, the, the rain matters, uh, for a lot of, a lot of reasons. One, it can help recharge the aquifer, but, but it also matters because there, as I mentioned earlier, there's parts of the farm that we couldn't irrigate, right? Like we didn't have enough water coming out of the wells. And so we first planted this conservation cover, native grasses and forbs. We 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 drilled that in with a no-till drill, and then we hoped for the monsoon rains, right? That the monsoon rains usually come in and could, could like get things growing. Mm-hmm. And the first two years after we planted it, we didn't get any monsoons. Um, and even now, like it, it it's still not growing in a lot of areas, but we uh, but we were able to put a little bit of irrigation on, put some animals out. So um, so that was tough, right? Like there's areas that we couldn't do anything on without the rain. The the uh, the wells that we have it pumps from the groundwater, and um, so as long as those wells are working, we've got enough water to get things wet, but we don't have an excess amount of water, right? And and it is expensive because those you know, those wells run on electricity, um, and then those mm. wells often break right and so like it was half a million dollars just to go through the wells and kind of clean them up we didn't deepen anything we just kind of got them to where they were kind of basically functioning but they're pretty small wells and so that water is really expensive right and every time you have to pull a well costs a lot of money um and so that's been tough um i have borrowed money from um, the farm credit system, Ag West, I think is what they're called now. Amazing resource. I would encourage your listeners to check into. You know, they, they really are designed to bank farmers. Um, and then uh, I, uh, I mentioned, I talk a little bit on my website, Open Farms, about farmers love Bitcoin mm-hmm. because I was early to Bitcoin. I had some Bitcoin. I didn't really want to sell it, but I was able to sell it, sell a good chunk of it. Uh, to pay for that first year of a lot of the operating loans, right? And so, I mean, just to be completely transparent, I'm still feeling my way through that. Like that, that it's it's not just the not just the water, but it's you know buying the equipment, the operating costs, you know, for labor, for diesel, for you know equipment rentals, for la- you know labor. It 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 adds up. 
and and so at the moment we're deeply in the hole which is where you know i think that that's where consumers come in right and and users come in eaters come in right and that's why i, I was willing to do a podcast with you is that that people just need to understand that like we can either continue the status quo or we're going to run out of farmland and the food's going to be very unhealthy for us or we pivot and we start fixing our farmland and recognize that it that you have to like catch up we have to pay a debt and that's going to cost more right and the food's mm-hmm. going to cost more but my my philosophy on this and my strategy has been to grow the very best products the very best way with the most integrity that are suited to my region and then to make the highest value, tastiest, most delicious products that come off of it and, and and try to, you know, encourage users to support us in that. And so we make, so we grow, you know, this amazing grain that has this amazing terroir of the Southwest. Some of the best, the world's best grain is grown in Arizona anyway. And if you grow it without inputs, uh, it ends up, you know, just, I mean, it's as clean and natural as it gets. And we're weaning ourselves off of, you know, the, the, uh, sort of the losing system there. Then we make some amazing flour that we sell to people. We use Barton Springs Mill. It looks like you're in Austin, probably, yeah. but Barton Springs yeah. Mill in Germany Springs, you know, Artisan <laughs> Mill, James Brown, they mill up our flour so you can buy it from hmm. them. Uh, consumers can in two and a half pound, or, or five pound bags. and Restaurants can order from us. Um, we make sourdough bread and pancake mixes that are amazing um, as well. And then we've recently started um, making vanilla extract, where we make the the neutral grain spirit out of our regenerative organic certified white snore wheat, and just pair that up with uh, organic Madagascar vanilla beans. And we barrel craft distill and barrel age it. So we're releasing. Uh, uh, you know, another product that comes from our, our wheat. And so my my uh, hope and my plan is that consumers will buy those products from me and from other farmers at the price point that allows us to uh, um, cover costs, right? Yeah. And, and, uh, and right now, like the price that we, that we price it at is expensive, but it would allow us to cover our cost just barely. And so if we got a lot of people to buy it, we could afford to do it year in and day in year out. And uh, we're finding other models, right? Like we're partnering up with these uh, livestock operators, you know, who are running the cattle or the sheep really they're focused on sheep, but we may run some cattle too with them, but where you can uh, get some additional value off of the farm, somebody's going to get to get it from this grass and other forage that that uh, we can't we can easily grow and then the animals leave us their fertilizer right so i my sort of mantra is that we at open flats ranch grow wheat meat and sweets right so wheat or barley like we partnered up with some folks for some like non-alcoholic beer programs wheat and barley small grains meat would be uh, lamb and probably beef and then sweets are like agave and and mesquite, but that's where you know, I would normally like pick those things, but that's what our region tells us we can responsibly grow, and so I think we need to develop the markets 
for those products. And everybody where they are should figure out what products should they be growing in their region or maybe what's heirloom in their region and then develop the markets for those things and and focus on our local systems, right? But from Arizona, we can service a lot of the Southwest with this amazing set of products that we're growing. No, I wholeheartedly agree with that sentiment of localization. I mean, especially when you think about produce and where that's coming from, that's a very important. On the topic of wheat, because this yeah. was one of the, the big things I really want to discuss. So my whole life, I had terrible gut issues, did not get any answers growing up. And I remember I had just started my job when I moved down to Austin a couple of years ago. And one of my coworkers was talking about her gut issues and whatnot. And I was telling her all my symptoms. And she's like, you should just try taking out gluten for a weekend. And I did mm -hmm. that exactly. And all of my symptoms went away immediately. And I know, mm -hmm. obviously, that's happening a lot here. You hear people all the time talking about, I went to Italy and had pasta and I could eat all of the gluten I wanted. And I felt great. And then came mm -hmm. back and the same issues persisted. Mm -hmm. So I guess if you just want to talk about why that issue is just such a major issue in America now. I know with glyphosate and emulsifiers and all these additives that you add because mm -hmm. you go to the grocery store and sourdough, for example, there should only be a few ingredients. You look at the label and just, why is there 15, 20 scientific experiments going on in this bread? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I'm just curious to hear your input on just all of wheat and why it's such an issue, but then why yours is so much better and to where we could mm -hmm. actually eat it digest it and it's good for us yeah absolutely it, it's a very important topic because i think there's a lot of confusion about this and actually it's i think there's a little bit of smoke and mirrors right like that people are you know blaming the wrong things and maybe reaching the wrong conclusions um i would encourage people to read a book called where your food comes or no it's called what your food ate <laughs> what your food ate came out i think last year which lays out, I mean, it'll open your eyes on a lot of things, but including gluten. But, um, but the, the way I think about it is that, I mean, gluten is just a protein, okay? And, um, and a lot of grains naturally had that protein in it. Uh, and, and I don't think that it's bad. I think it's actually really good and it's healthy. For people, there's some people who have like celiac disease, and you know, and and we've certainly all developed um, more like autoimmune disorders and allergies and everything else. But just, but if you follow me, just kind of linearly on this journey, I'll just say that like, there's nothing bad about gluten. Gluten's good to start with. We have screwed it up by breeding all sorts of different types of wheat together to focus on yield, right? Like if you think about and we go back and read like Norman Borlaug and all the rest who are trying to feed the world during famine, during the Green Revolution, that we ended up taking like these mutant, like Japanese short wheat stalks and, and then, you know, crossing them with like some high yielding uh, wheat varieties. And then, you know, but they were developed with the idea that you'd put a bunch of fer liquid fertilizer on them and herbicides, and then they would grow, right? And so just, you know, like, uh, there are a lot of wheat breeders and other breeders who do amazing work. And, and we actually are, we are growing one modern variety of wheat on our farm. So like, I'm not, I'm not castigating wheat breeders, but I would just say it doesn't, for me, it doesn't, 
it's not a, a far-fetched conclusion to think that once you start just like working with defects, you know, uh, um, trying to breed different things together, you end up screwing up gluten and everything else about that wheat, right? Um, and and so uh, a lot of the wheat that we have has it has been intentionally developed so that you get a lot of yield um, per acre. And it wasn't developed for for health. It wasn't developed for uh, flavor. It was developed so we could just get a lot of it. Okay. And uh, and so for me, like dialing it back, I went to these land race and heirloom varieties that haven't been manipulated at all, right? So I grew white Sonora wheat. That's a heritage variety land race. Nobody's crossed that with anything, right? Bluebeard Durham, similarly, ancient branch, like a Durham, right? Red Fife, similar. So so for me, it's like, I just didn't want to have to wonder, like, what's what's mm-hmm. happened to this thing? I go with the original versions. and um, And then... We found from the Washington State University Bread Lab, there was a variety of wheat that's called SCAD 1109 that was developed by Dr. Stephen Jones and uh, Stephen Lyon uh, for the Skagit Valley, like tulip farmers. And, and it was bread for flavor, to use the whole grain in your food, right? Like, so it was very intentionally selected. And, uh, and it turns out that that's like a really good tasting, healthy, uh, uh, bread flour. And so I've been growing this modern variety so that we have opportunities to pair it up with the heirloom varieties that maybe don't perform quite as, you know, consistently the way that people expect like a bread flour to work, but mm-hmm. you can pair it up and you get amazing bread out of it. But, uh, for me, it's back to this, you know, like there's individual tastes and flavors and people have different, uh, health needs. But but I have not yet found anybody who's tried our mixes, our pancake mixes, which by the way are a hundred percent heirloom variety, and it's ninety seven percent. Or actually, the the, the pancake mixes are hundred percent whole grain. I've never met anybody who's had a, who who has had like a gluten sensitivity or anything who's tried that who's had a problem, right? Hmm. Nor is anybody who's tried our breads, which also have this modern variety. In it. have they had a problem? Okay, in fact. People who have gluten sensitivities and people who've, some of people in my family who trust me who have celiac, they've tried this and they feel fine. And so what that tells me is that it can be part of, part of the problem. Part of the story is how we bastardize gluten. But the rest of it, I think, is there's a bigger story in there about glyphosate. Okay. Glyphosate, it's like Roundup. And it's meant to to dry out, kill, desiccate. It's meant to kill everything around it. And a lot of farmers use it to get uh, a predictable uh, drying of their grain so they can harvest it on time, right? And and so if it's not organic wheat, organic grain or vegetables for that matter, it's probably got glyphosate all over it. And so what it it might very simplistic view of what happens is when you, you eat any sort of wheat or flour or crackers or cookies that has glyphosate on it and it goes down and it kills your microbiome. It just bleaches it out, right? And you're going to have problems if your gut's not healthy. 
And so um, I, I do think that if you've got, so gl- glyphosate out of the equation, people are like, your stomach's not going to be rumbling or anything else. And then you think about like, is this identity preserved? Is it a complete clean supply chain? I've been to some of these grain, you know, uh, cleaning facilities and storage facilities. And it's about every type of grain you named, all just added in, blended up hmm. together, brought in on trucks. It's been fumigated, sitting out, there's rodents in it. You know, you, there's bugs. That's what we're eating. Like you have this nice hmm. shiny packaging, but 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 a lot of what we eat out there, the cheap food in particular, has been fumigated. It's old. It's mixed, right? It, it some of it has mold in it, but like there's there's like tolerances for what you can have. Ours, it's a single estate. It's like single estate coffee or chocolate. We grow the wheat. We plant the wheat. We grow the we grow it organically and regeneratively. We grow it. We we harvest it. We clean it ourselves. We mill it with a partner that we know back in our own packaging. And then it goes into the finished products. And so we know, and by the way, we include transparency, like a QR code on, on the packaging. So you can see exactly when each of those tasks was performed and who did it. And oh, when. that's awesome. And, and so it, it really exceeds a label. Like you, today, everyone's shopping, oh, it's just organic or whatever. But what if every package showed you what the seed was, who planted it, where they planted it, like by location? Who harvested it, when they trucked it, when they milled it, when they put it into the, the finished products, and they delivered it to you. Wow. Like, yeah. part of the reason that nobody else is doing this, or very few people is doing it, is because there's a big problem with the way our food's made, okay, in, in every layer. And uh, and so I think we you know, we're going to put regenerative, we put regenerative organic certified as a label on the front of it. And so that gets people's attention. But I really encourage consumers to be smarter consumers and to ask all the questions and if and and to only buy the products where you get a good answer about where your food came from. Because if you can't get an answer, you can probably assume it's not good for you. And it's been there's you know and, and all of those things added together are what make you feel like hell, right? When you eat that stuff. So I guess I would say, you know, like to me, it's like it's the Coke and Pepsi challenge. It's like if you have a gluten problem, buy one of my pancake mixes, eat a pancake, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. If you're doing okay with that, make a loaf of sourdough bread. Eat a slice. Eat a little. Eat a, eat a nibble. And and I guess I would just say, like, I want to hear from anybody who says I made it the right way, and and I had a problem because I actually don't think that, I mean, kind of put a challenge in, I don't think there's many people who will have a problem. I don't want anybody to do anything dangerous for their health. And they should, if they have a question, they should talk to their doctors. But I guess I'm just saying that like food can be our best medicine. <laughs> and, and when we have food grown or regeneratively or organically with, there's literally no chemicals at all of any type used uh, on our crops. And then we give you the whole grain or we're going to give you the whole you know, mesquite bean, or we're going to give you the the sheep, the the lamb prosciutto, or whatever it is. Like it literally is just, you know, nature working her magic, put into a, a a finished product that you can put into your system. And and I almost don't think that it's fair 
to compare like regeneratively or, or regenerative organic certified food to their counterparts. Like it's almost like an entirely different product. Like mm-hmm. my pancakes are not the same thing as you fill in the blank other pancakes. You know, the milk, the Hartquist or the, the Alexander Family Farms puts out, you know, the full fat, dairy raised. It's not the same thing, you know, and it, and it takes a lot more work to get it. So, you know, it, I think we're at this uh, kind of a renaissance, maybe I'm kind of playing off the name of your podcast, <laughs> but like it's, we're in a renaissance of the staples, mm-hmm. bread, milk, pancakes, flour, salt. We're starting over. It's like version 2.0. It's like it's like Web three. We're back yeah. to food 2.0. Like the like the, or going back. It's like food 0.0, the way it should have been, as opposed to how we you know messed it up over time. Yeah, well, that's great. And now I can also see why you like Bitcoin with verification, but also questioning a lot of things. So I'm curious with the processing. If you could just go in more detail about. Um, what it actually looks like for washing, but then also milling and explaining stone milling for those that don't know what that means. Yeah, for sure. So, um, so we just we take a combine, drive through the the fields, and and it gathers up all the wheat. Okay, and it and it shakes off the the chaff. That all goes just into like a truck that we send to a grain cleaning facility, which just uses air. And like weight, the weight of the, the grain versus the chaff to just blow off all of the excess. We're just left with the clean wheat, right? And then we take the extra crack seeds and the chaff, and that's like chicken, it can be like chicken feed. But we take that grain and we send it to a mill, Karen Spring Mills, Barton Spring Mills. Uh, and they have stones, they have milling stones um, that they use. Uh, to um to to you know, kind of grind the the wheat to where you can retain all of the oils and the bran and the germ and rather just like getting beat, beat up it's you you grind it up and so you the the finished product has like all those nice oils and polyphenols and other things and you get the bran and the germ right and we encourage more people to eat the whole the whole grain like the whole wheat um, but you end up with just all of the parts of the wheat, except maybe you, you scrape off if you don't want the whole wheat, you know, maybe you shave off some of the bran and the germ, some small portion of it. Um, but you know, the, the wheat has, has the, the bran and the germ and the endosperm and, um, even things like the preservation or like the anti-inflammatory, uh, um, uh, uh, what would you call it? The, the uh, measures that the wheat normally has in itself, like you only get the advantage of if you eat the whole thing, right? Like the mm-hmm. wheat kernel is meant to be used in full, but, but the, um, in, in the wheat business or the flour business, there's a lot of, you know, fudging, I think that goes on where people will call something whole wheat where they'll take the bran and the germ off of it. And then they go like bake it, they like, you know, sterilize almost that, that brand and that germ. And then they just take the endosperm and then they reintroduce the, um, the, the, like the brand or the germ into it as opposed to, and then they call it whole wheat, right? Where it's been separated, sterilized, whatever. And then they even go further sometimes 
adding vitamins, it's enriched, right? Yeah. Right. Uh, and, and so stone milled um, whole wheat grain it, it tells you that you've got like all the parts of the, the, the wheat that was there and it hasn't run through some other process. It's just been ground up and put into a bag and you can smell the difference hmm. and taste the difference. That's interesting. So I'm curious to, um, from a strategic standpoint, I know you kind of talked about this a little bit with the pricing, especially because that was one thing. Mm -hmm. So I worked on a farm last fall in Pennsylvania, a rural town, and they're regenerative as well. And I just remember hearing on the farmer's markets because I was in charge of a lot of those. They would have conversations with me and trying to, they're really questioning everything. Why our corn, for example, was $2 more than the corn next to us, but they were conventionally raised mm -hmm. and they sprayed everything. So I'm curious from your standpoint, because you're more of the financial strategy, how are you going about that in terms of yeah, your pricing and trying to really get that out there and, and sell? Mm -hmm. Well, um, first I'll say that we haven't cracked that code, right? Like the, we have as a country and really just as a whole world, yeah, we have commoditized food where we've also like we start we create like financial instruments around food so that like there are people just are in the they're just in the investment management space who are speculating in the price of wheat and corn and we've we've standardized the prices it which separates those prices from the reality of where you grow it in all the various costs and costs to grow it right so just as an example like in montana you can do dry land farming so you don't have to have any irrigation on it right you can plant it and, and mother nature will like grow it well okay so in in those situations i mean I, i'm i'm paying thousands of dollars a month to pump water from a well and we and and then we also have like for, for instance in our, in our ground we have a lot of like invasive species like Bermuda grass, where the the amount of wheat that pops up because it's competing with other species is actually smaller, right? And so, at the end of the day, that that um, that like this like the techniques that we use for instance regenerative kernel while we're rebuilding the soil means we're focusing on proving the soil and all of the cycles like the water cycle and the carbon cycle the nutrient cycle and so the yield our yield might be three or four times less than somebody who just puts like chemical fertilizers on it and they rip the ground and they till it right so first of all we're getting significantly less per acre and then our circumstances change right like we have to pay electricity where somebody else doesn't that it just adds up right that the, the, the costs go so like everybody's gotten trained like even in phoenix like in the phoenix metropolitan area where people are like people who use a lot of wheat pizza makers and bakers and everybody else they're just used to buying a standard product from one of the large mills that services a lot of the country and so like we've made flour like a it, there's like a certain price for that it's like okay 63 cents a pound is what people expect to to use, but what they don't realize is that wheat's not coming from their state, it's not coming from their community, right? It's coming from someplace else that in in other places, sometimes even internationally, that's been heavily subsidized. 
And so um, uh, what we do is just, first of all, explain that we are Regenerate Organic certified and that, and that, you know, we explain all the costs that go into it and we welcome people to come out to the farm and see it, right? Uh, and then we just ask them, like, we'll taste it and see how you feel. And I mean, do you care about where the world's headed? Yes or no? Because for me, it, it, it's almost binary that way, right? Like if people, and, and most consumers don't know this, right? And that's why your podcast and others are so valuable is that you start to educate people about like food and how to make choices amongst them. But most people just don't understand like, the, the the price they pay for, for food is like artificially low and that 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 if you continue doing what we're doing we're going to the, the farming practices are going to continue the way they are which means we're running into a, a brick wall right and so we're saying well we've changed the practices this is the price currently as we pivoted the corner i'm committed as a farm owner and a brand owner to give consumers the benefit of reduced costs after the land gets abundant and I'm not having to put fertilizers in it will bring that cost down. But to kickstart the engine, you kind of need to go back and have a conversation with your farmer. Like, well, why is it expensive? Right. And you should not be, people should not be surprised that it costs three times as much as the mm-hmm. conventional product. Okay. Well, if people start to understand, well, that's it. And what if they have to spend, I mean, by the way, if you spend that much more, maybe spend, you spend two thirds more for the amount of money you spend on flour. Which, what's that going to be for a household? A hundred bucks, right? A year, <laughs> two hundred bucks, right? So even if you're talking about five or six hundred bucks, right, that, that you end up coming out of pocket, what could your offsetting um, savings be on your medicine and your health care, right, and your lifespan, right? And so it comes down to like which do you value most, and um, and but you know that's where like you gotta people have to find the real deal, the authentic product that's better, and not not be fooled by it. But we welcome all the the scrutiny, and uh, and and I'm happy to lay out the books for anybody who wants to know exactly what the costs went into it. And uh, for me, it's about keeping farming alive, agriculture alive in Arizona. Because I care about the farming lifestyle. I care about the cowboy culture. And if if we continue the course we're on, we're going to end up with just developments, condos and neighborhoods, and no farms. And to me, that is like the worst possible outcome. I definitely agree with that. Um, I think that's a good segue into talking a little bit about Bitcoin, because I'm curious, with I guess, yeah, what got you into Bitcoin and how do you see that play out in, in the world of agriculture and farming? Mm-hmm. So I started my career as a technology lawyer and um, immediately got into the technology that relates to money and financial services. So um, as, as a lawyer, I've dealt with you know things about like mobile payments and, and uh, payment processing and um, you know, local coupons and you name it, all these various things that you, anytime you're dealing with money, like on an app or in a, on an online service, I've, I've done that work. I've advised around things like money transmission and anti-money laundering and sanctions and help people navigate those, those laws and those rules. 
And so when Bitcoin popped onto the scene, you know, in 2009, it was actually like a thing that people would get a hold of. The very earliest entrepreneurs who were building businesses around it, like exchanges and brokerages and wallets, uh, they came to me for help to understand how to build a business so that they wouldn't go to jail, right, to deal with the laws. Hmm. And so I became familiar with Bitcoin at that time. And so this is part of really my work of of advising these entrepreneurs uh, and these innovators. I need to know how it worked. And so I looked into Bitcoin. I bought Bitcoin. I played with Bitcoin. And then there are other standard, other protocols that came out. And to me, it was a part of my job, but but I recognized that this was an alternative to the existing payment system, financial system, right? Like that Bitcoin, you know, today it's a lot easier to see what it is than what we even understood it to be back in 2010. But it's like a bank or like a PayPal that everybody can use, but nobody owns and controls, right? Like it, it's it's res- center resistant, it's re- resilient. Uh, it's predictable. There's only 21 million Bitcoin that will, that will ever be created. And of course, it's gone up in value because it's useful, right? Um, it's it's useful as as a reliable financial system, right? And it also is more than that. It's a ledgering system. You can use little bits of Bitcoin to keep track of other assets, other types of property, right? So just as a as a think of like a new operating system and as an asset. It's valuable, and, and I think that the increases in value have recognized that. Like it, it's like a useful contribution to the world, and so people have bought it. Um, and so, um, but it's also it got some really interesting, I guess, characteristics. Which is, for me at least, I don't think that, that we've ever seen an asset that has gone up more in value than Bitcoin ever. Right. So, like, there's just an asset that everybody can get access to without needing to be an accredited investor. And you can use it to store value. You can use it to send value. You can use it just as a as a speculative instru- instrument if you wanted to, right? Mm-hmm. And there's laws around what you can do with it. But, like, but, but my view is it's money that has gone up significantly in value. And just over my tenure, it did. So... You know, the My Farmers Love Bitcoin initiative that I write about at OatmanFarms.com really just encourages farmers of all types uh, to, like, create a Bitcoin address, right? And to put it out there and encourage people to tip them in Bitcoin or pay them a little bit of Bitcoin. If you value what the farmer does, pay them a little bit of Bitcoin. And then let's just see what happens. If it turns out that the farmer... Uh, collects enough Bitcoin, uh, and that Bitcoin goes up in value significantly, then that might uh, enable them to transition the farm to organic. It might allow them to pass it on with succession planning. You could do all sorts of things with it. So, so part of it is just like it's it's valuable. It's money. It's a new system. And so to me, it's like the mo- it's the mo- monetary system that goes along with regenerative agriculture. Like if we're trying to fix the climate. To fix the soil. Well, let's also fix the financial system so that it works for everybody. That everybody, it's inclusive, and you don't necessarily need to embrace it fully. But like, it's nice to have that as an option. Uh, and some people, and I think many younger people, are very comfortable living entirely in that crypto 
DeFi, you know, kind of crypto first environment. And I don't honestly blame them, right? Because it's predictable, they can trust it. And yeah, sometimes you lose money, but you lose money with a lot of the other traditional regulated financial services firms too, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so you know, that, that story's still being written, but uh, I would just say that, that anybody who's just interested in having money, knowing how money works for them, they should look into Bitcoin, right? And they, they should look, figure out how it works. They should also look at things like the Lightning Network. The Lightning Network allows people to uh, interact with Bitcoin in smaller amounts and more rapidly. It's, a, it's called a Layer 2 protocol that's built on the Bitcoin protocol. Yeah, but um, to look into it, and in my view is that like it's open, it's decentralized, it's distributed, it's peer to peer, it's it's a, it's it's money for our time, it's value for our time. Um, there's a lot of other tokens that you know people can lose a lot of money on, but I think that Bitcoin is probably something that people should look into and and, and consider whether it works for them. But but then to anticipate like other ways that we might be able to use. Bitcoin, not just try to like pay Bitcoin to people, but how we use blockchain technology and smart contracts to facilitate things like global trade and commerce and instant settlement, um, conversion between uh, uh, fiat currencies and like farm outputs and how you might even be able to borrow against your own farmland. And so there's, a, and then there's things like transparency where you can record information and quickly see uh, uh, like if information has changed. So there's all sorts of places where ledgers and smart contracts and like the settlement functionality of blockchain technology can be used in non-monetary ways that I think can accelerate the goals of, um, of regenerative agriculture and really just like farmer prosperity. I like that. I mean, the two points, the one with blockchain, I agree because in grad school, one of my, my capstone project was on blockchain. And that's why I was interested whenever you're talking about just your whole process is out there. So you can see all the transparency because verification is a huge point. I mean, there was the video a couple months ago about all of the cobalt being mined in the Congo for the phones. People don't know, like you just have the phone. You don't think about verification of any of that. When you go to the grocery <laughs> store, you expect it to be fully stocked not a clue where it comes from. And then that goes back to your, your really good point about the wheat and how you have no idea what all went into the conventional slop, whatever you would call that put together. And so mm-hmm. that's really great. But then on the flip side too, with Bitcoin, why I'm so bullish on that, especially from the value perspective, it gives the power back to us and with farming and whatnot, especially from a financial standpoint, how difficult that is how difficult it is to start one, how difficult it is to transition from conventional to um, implementing more organic and, and regenerative practices. That's very costly. And so mm-hmm. I, I love that you're doing that because that's such a great way to think long-term with your farm, but also gives you the ability to have some of those realistic options in the future. Yeah. Um, well, let me say yeah. a couple of things on that. So there, like a long time ago, maybe it was five or six, seven years ago, I read a report from Gartner, and Gartner does like the hype cycle reports. Mm-hmm. And and there are two things that stood out to me. One, they said blockchain technology is transformative. Okay, 
Actually, there's three things that stood out. One, it's transformative. Second, they said it's going to create at least $3 trillion worth of new value. And third, they said that it's going to get started in earnest in 2028. Okay. And, and so what I gathered from that, first of all, is, okay, well, like, blockchain technology, even back then, was forecast to create $3 trillion worth of new value. Well, $3 trillion worth of new value directed into like big problems like health, environment, pharma welfare, justice, education systems. Like we could transform this world. Like there's a lot of the, the hard problems we haven't been able to, to figure out how to solve that we might be able to solve with this new amount of money, this new toolkit, right? And so I think we need more people thinking about blockchain and crypto, Bitcoin, not just, hey, how do, how do I make some more money off of it? But how do I leverage that to change the world, make it a better place, right? And there are companies like Producers Market that I use for that transparency tool. There's a thing called Story, Story Bird, you know, the guys at Gcoin, Emergent Payment, like back to your, your um, Cobalt example, right? Like this is a company that used blockchain technology to demonstrate that the gold that like pulled out of mines is responsibly sourced all the way through from the mine to the refinery and then all the way down to like the gold um whatever it is like a gram that mm -hmm. makes it in like all the iphones yeah right where like you can or on the jewelry that's on on your finger you can tell this is not conflict gold is no child labor all, and so why not apply that like we, we've applied that technology to gold which is like the most valuable resource ever but now apply it to things like food, right? And where food comes from. Um, AgroToken is another example. They're down in, in Argentina and um, and um, and Brazil, right? Where they they've essentially created a new they they've solved a monetary problem by creating essentially like a stablecoin out of like a ton of corn or wheat or soy. Uh, where, where like their their peso is very like unreliable, but like farm out farm crops could be reliable, right? So you we're able to solve problems in different parts of the world. There's like a lot of very a lot of interest in in blockchain in Africa right now too. A lot of innovation happening, and so I think we should just be thinking about where different problems exist and watch where the solutions come in. In the United States, blockchain is often viewed as like a solution search for a problem. But there are places really all over the world where there are problems where maybe this is the right solution, and then we can sort of expand it. So um, I, I'm, I keep trying to convene gatherings of people who are interested in blockchain technology and advanced technologies like AI, generative AI, and regenerative agriculture, and get them together to have the conversation. There's some really interesting uh, companies out there. Hmm. Well, that's great. And outside of that, is there anything that you'd like to share with the audience of where to find you at? Uh, yes, thank you. Uh, we would love you to support our direct-to-consumer um, model by going to oatmanfarms.com to buy our products there. The farmers make the most money when you buy directly from them. Um, we're also on Amazon. Uh, you can search for Oatman Farms on Amazon, and we are in the Whole Food stores in Arizona and, and in other places. Like our, 
if you're in Arizona, go support our friends at Arizona Wilderness Brewery or Chompies. They're using our, our flour in all sorts of really interesting ways, like soft pretzels and chicken and waffles. And so any way you support it or, you know, drink the beer, whatever it is, but like any way you consume it, you're helping us. Awesome. Thank you again, Jack. So, Thanks for joining. My pleasure. Thank you for a great conversation.